Hello, fellow music nerds. Welcome back to Music Makers and Soul Shakers. I'm your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm a guitarist, songwriter, and producer originally from Vancouver, Canada. I love all aspects of making records. So I thought I'd make a podcast and bring in a slew of folks who've also made records in one way or another and yak about it with them. Each month, I'll be bringing you an in-depth conversation with a new guest. It may be a musician, a songwriter, a producer, or an engineer, but each of these people will have a fascinating story to tell about their lives and their involvement in the process of being a music maker and or a soul shaker. Thanks for joining me, and feel free to reach out to me through the podcast website at www.stevedawson.ca. And now, here's another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Hey there, music nerds. How are you doing? I hope you're doing well. I'm doing very well right here in Nashville, Tennessee, coming at you. This is episode number 75, and my guest this month is Molly Tuttle. And it's very exciting because I've been trying to get Molly on the show for quite a while. It's been tricky to line it up schedule-wise, but we figured it out thanks to a number of folks, which I'll get into in a second. But uh, this is the first live performance of the podcast that we've ever done. And uh, so how this came about was I was asked to play at the um, Elnora Guitar Festival at the Cranert Center in Illinois, just south of Chicago. And uh, after they booked me to play at the festival, they said, hey, you do this podcast as well. Why don't you do a live version of the podcast? And they told me who was playing the festival. And Molly Tuttle was right at the top of my list. And sure enough, she agreed to do it. So we performed together. We did a really cool improvised thing with me and Molly and Luther Dickinson and Rob Ikes and Trey Hensley. And um, then Molly and I did a set together where we did our own thing and then played a little together at the end. And then we did this, which was the live podcast. She brought her guitar along and we got to talk about all kinds of interesting stuff, her influences growing up in California, playing with her family band, The Tuttles. Uh, going to Berkeley College of Music and getting into writing her own amazing songs, which had been released recently on her, essentially her debut album. She put out an EP before of original music, but this is her first full-length album called When You're Ready. And it's got killer songs, great playing, awesome singing. It's a fantastic record. So make sure you go check out mollytuttlemusic.com, find out where she's playing. She's got a great band that she's touring all over the world with. Go see them, go buy her music, go stream it if you must, and do that whole thing. Um, and Oh, and we got to talk about making the record with um, Ryan Hewitt as well, who produced the al- album, and uh, he's done a lot of great records, and uh, I wanted to find out about that process. So it was a lot of fun. We got to do this podcast in front of, I don't know, 80 or 100 people or something. It's the first time I've, I've done it, and hopefully we'll get a chance to do it again. So I hope you've been enjoying the shows. Last month we had Joaquin Cooter on. This is episode 75. And uh, we've that's sort of a milestone. That's pretty good. 75. Solid. And um, it's been going for three and a bit years now. So that's all rather exciting. I also know that we've hit some sort of 250,000 listen stat, which I don't really understand how they do all the stats. They don't really tell us exactly what's going on in podcast land, but 
250,000, that's a quarter of a million. That's a lot of people listening to the show. That doesn't mean that a quarter of a million people regularly listen to the show. It just means that that's how many times the show has been heard in total uh, out of all the episodes over the three and a half years or whatever. So that's cool. Uh, once again, I would just like to tell you how to support the show. Um, the, the most important and easiest way you can do it is just head over to Apple Podcasts right now and leave a review, hopefully a very, very nice one. If you have horrible things to say, maybe just keep it to yourself. If you have good things to say, go on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star review and say some nice things. Even one sentence would be helpful. What they do is the podcasts that get a lot of comments and reviews eventually get featured, which leads to more listeners. And the other ways you can support the show are to head over to thehenhousestudio.com, which is where I make these shows. And um, that's my studio here in Nashville, Tennessee. And uh, you can buy a t-shirt that helps to keep things rolling, or you can make a one-time donation, or you can uh, get onto the link that takes you to patreon.com and uh, support the show with a monthly um, contribution as low as a buck or two. So uh, that's how you can support the show. So this episode, Molly Tuttle, number 75, a uh, big thank you to the Cranert Center and the Elnora Guitar Festival for letting us do this. That was a really fun experience. Um, Molly Tuttle, for those of you who don't know, I'm sure listeners, regular listeners probably have heard her music, but if you haven't, Molly's a phenomenal bluegrass flat picker. Uh, her music that she records uh, is quite far from, from bluegrass, and we'll get into that today. And that's exciting for me as a listener. Uh, maybe it's irritating for her bluegrass fans. I don't know. But um, regardless, she's writing some incredible songs and performing them in a really unique way. But at the heart of it, she's a killer flat picker and great singer. I'm really interested in this this new breed of flat pickers that are coming up. There's Molly. Here in town, there's a bunch of phenomenal ones. Molly and Trey Hensley is out of this world. And uh, Critter from uh, Punch Brothers. So Critter we've had on the show. Trey Hensley is going to be on the show. And uh, we've got Molly th this month. And she is just like a really soulful and uh, fluid flat picker. And I encourage you to go and listen to as much of her music as you can. Things are ticking along here. I've been performing a bunch all over the world um, with the Birds of Chicago, which is the band I've been playing with quite a bit over the last year. And uh, we just had a great tour of the UK and met some of the listeners out there. So thank you to those listeners that come out and support the music and say hi at the end of the show and, and tell me that they're listeners of the show as well. That's really cool to head over to the UK and Ireland and other places in the world and realize that um, people are hearing the podcast and picking up on it. And it's also been a fantastic year for uh, recording for me. I've, I've had some great opportunities to work with some people. Matt Pattershuck, Big Dave McLean, Matt Anderson, phenomenal singer. Those guys are all Canadian people that uh, some of the some of those records we made up in Canada, some down here. Lisa Sanders from California, Raina Rose from Austin, Texas. Joe Edwards from somewhere in the UK. I can never remember where he lives, but his record's coming out next year. Check it out. Um, those are all amazing projects that I've had uh, a solid hand in making this year, and it's it's been great working on music. I would like to thank, at this point, some financial backers through Patreon. These people contribute monthly to the show, and I would just like to thank them right now. And I apologize in advance if I get any of these names wrong. That would be embarrassing, but... It does happen. So through Patreon, these are the people that support the show every month uh, recently that have joined in. Eilert Autumn, James Beavis, Colin Dwyer, Ben Winship, 
Frank Martin, and Donald Cohen. Thank you, guys. And uh, we also do one-time donations, as I mentioned. And here's a few people that have kicked in one-time donations, and that is uh, very helpful to keeping us going as well. So thanks to Chris Batty, Stephen Kaplan, Bob Bradshaw, Matt Marshak, Sean Fetter, Bill Hunt, Charles Vasilius, Kenneth Schiff, Ronald Haas, David Hoffert, David Youngson, Peter Craig Mitchell, and Rico Jerusi. You guys are all awesome. And lastly, a word from this week's sponsors, Union, Tube, and Transistor. They have some new products coming down the line. First of all, they're doing a killer new guitar signal splitter called the GBX95. It allows you to split your guitar to up to 6 amps plus a DI, which is actually way harder to do than it should be. Very handy for recording multiple guitar amps. Next, they're about to release their 343 guitar amp. It features a very unique 10 and 12 inch speaker switching feature. You can run one or both speakers for tonal options. And finally, their lab compressor pedal is a little optical compressor and is killer both in front of a guitar amp or as a piece of outboard studio gear. I use one pretty much all the time. Head on over to uniontone.com to find out more. All right then, let's do this. Here is this month's episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Good afternoon, everybody. How's it going out there? All right. Uh, thanks so much for coming in and joining us. This is a live podcast. Uh, it's going to be broadcast in a few weeks. This is the, the first time I've, we've done this in front of an audience. I usually do it in the comfort of my studio in Nashville, but it's great to do it here for you. And uh, I'm not going to tell you much about her because I'm sure you know some things and all the other stuff you don't know we're going to find out very soon. Please welcome to the stage Molly Tuttle. <clears throat> and she brought her guitar. Excellent. But we'll jump, jump right in. And So Molly, uh, you've got a new record out this year, which is awesome, and we'll talk about that. Um, and you've had a pretty impressive few years, a great run of awards and accolades and, and all that. Uh, but I was wondering if we could maybe just jump right back to your earliest musical experiences and talk a little bit about, uh, I know you grew up in California, but maybe you could talk about your experiences within your family and mm -hmm. growing up and things like that first. Yeah. Well, um, my dad was my teacher. He's actually here in the audience right now. So is right. my brother. <laughs> Um, there in town, my dad went to college here and my younger brother is checking out the college to, um, checking out the PhD program. Um, so it's cool to have them here. Um, but that was really, I started music cause I heard my dad playing and he's a music teacher. He's taught, um, all the bluegrass instruments in the Bay area for, I think it's almost 40 years now. Um, so I just grew up with tons of instruments around the house, um, hearing my dad play, um, hearing we would have jam sessions at the house. I also just listened to a lot of music and, um, yeah, just since I was a really young kid, I've always wanted to play music. I didn't know that I always wanted to play guitar, but, um, after trying a few different instruments and, um, none of them really sticking, I finally got a guitar and started learning that. And that's what really, um, stuck for me. And I kind of fell in love with playing guitar and, so yeah, my earliest memories were just playing with my dad and um, my younger brothers both started playing a few years after I did. So I played with them and played with other kids my own age um, around the Bay Area that I met through um, bluegrass festivals or jams that I went to. Yeah, those were some of my earliest memories. Then when I became a little older, when I was in middle school, I remember I had, um, I was, I started seeking out other styles of music other than bluegrass. I had a teacher 
a music teacher who um, helped us put together rock bands and he had a huge CD collection that that I could, um, he said I could take any CDs I wanted and burn them. So I I remember um, taking a whole box set of Jimi Hendrix and um, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Blink-182. I kind of started listening to rock music and um, so I always kind of was exploring other styles as well. Um, And then when I was a little older, started writing songs and listening to more songwriters um, like Gillian Welch and Joni Mitchell and Bob Dylan. and So when you first picked up the guitar, you said that that was the, the instrument that you really took to. Mm-hmm. Did you, like, what, are the, what other instruments did you play before that? Um, I didn't really play anything else seriously. I remember I went to piano lessons for, I don't even know for how long. To me, it felt like for a really long time, <laughs> but I was also seven years weeks. old. It was probably like three <laughs> lessons, yeah. Um, I think I went to like one violin lesson, a Suzuki violin lesson, and quit um, yeah. right after that, but... Yeah, so I, it was really like my first real instrument that I actually would practice. And were you taking lessons, or did your dad teach you, or were you playing by ear? Um, I wasn't taking guitar lessons except from for from my dad, but they weren't like formal lessons. He would just come home and show me something new, and yeah, um, yeah I would practice. And so yeah, I learned a lot by ear. I never really learned theory until later when I went to music college. But, right, right. Yeah. Um, okay, so so you're at home. You're sort of picking up like just sort of basic folky kind of chords and stuff was that your first foray into learning guitar I guess there was probably a lot of bluegrass being listened to Mm -hmm. around the house so you would have been exposed to that was that the primary style of music that was around for you yeah bluegrass definitely bluegrass and I um kind of learned like some leads on simple fiddle tunes like bluegrass and old time tunes and um learned to play like bluegrass rhythm yeah and like which is kind of a specific style instead of um just learning chords and playing around with that, I kind of like learned everything from a bluegrass perspective. Yeah. Starting out. Do you remember what the first tune you learned was? Uh, I think it was Cripple Creek and yeah. Nice. Yeah. (laughs) Can I, can you give me a little blast of that? Yeah, I'll try to, this is so I'll play just like a simplified version, how I probably similar to how I first learned. Uh, and so if you were going to play a tune like that now, how would you embellish oh, yeah. on, um, on that? Yeah. <laughs> awesome. When you were learning tunes like that, were you learning them, like, was your dad teaching them to you from him playing them on the fiddle or something, or was he a guitar player as well? Yeah, he would show me on guitar, so my dad you. plays guitar, yeah. Okay. So, you, so was that, like, a, a common thing for you, is you would learn, like, a really simplified, the basic melody of a, of a tune, like a fiddle tune, mm-hmm. and then were you working on embellishing and, like, making things more complex at that time, or were you just trying to get through, like, I just want to learn, like melodies um, to a few, t- a few tunes yeah that's like an important thing of being a musician is like just learning the melodies and just playing mm-hmm. those, those in their most simplistic form I think totally I think I'd say for the first like two or three years that I was playing I was just playing stuff in pretty simple forms maybe I yeah. started to embellish a little bit more as time went on but um in the beginning I was just trying to play 
um, simple tunes. And yeah. I remember I was eight when I started, so my fingers were pretty small, and like <laughs> it was hard to even just press down on Did the strings. Did you have a full size make... guitar when you first no, started? No, I played a Baby Taylor guitar when I first started. Oh, cute. Yeah. <laughs> um, steel strings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. So you're eight years old. You're playing heads to bluegrass tunes. How long was it before you actually started playing with other musicians, or were you diving in right away? And um, I started playing with others when I was eleven or twelve. So a couple yeah. years after I started playing, like other kids, did you have friends that were also keen on bluegrass, or not so much? There were some people at my middle school who were that were older than me. Um, so yeah. I would play with them a little bit. But then also my dad had other students who were around the same age as me. So okay. we formed a band and actually played like. We played at the local pizza parlor. I remember we went out to Missouri. <laughs> that's exactly where uh, Nickel Creek played, was at oh, their, yeah, their local pizza cool. joint. Yeah, that was always fun. And yeah. I remember our biggest gig was we went to Missouri and played at Rhonda Vincent's Bluegrass Festival because she had invited mm. um, one of the girls I played with to play there. So we all went as a band, and that was really exciting. Neat. And you were playing with your brothers too, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I started out not playing with them, but then as time went on, um, they got to the point where they were wanting to perform, and so we all started playing together. Are they younger than you? Or? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, and they play fiddle and? Um, guitar and mandolin. Guitar and mandolin. Okay. Mm-hmm. And your dad was in the, so, so you had like a family band situation. Yeah, after a while it kind of turned into that. We played, um, me and my brothers and my dad, and then we had a friend, AJ Lee, who played mandolin also, and she's a great singer. Um, so she would play with us too. So it was like kind of a family band, but with like yeah. one extra person who right. wasn't in the family. Yeah. Um, yeah. You let them in. Yeah. <laughs> uh, were you singing then or no? Yeah, I was always singing. Um, I always loved singing and I didn't get as serious about it as quickly. So maybe when I was 13, around 13, 14, that's when I started um, trying to sing lead um, yeah. at shows and stuff. And I started practicing that as well. So what was the extent of your gigging slash touring experiences when you were playing with your family group? Um, we would play... A lot of festivals around California. We'd go yeah. to bluegrass festivals, mostly in the summers, because um, I knew a lot of like bluegrass kids growing up who were homeschooled, and they just got to do it all the time. But me and my brothers went to public school, and we weren't like those pesky bluegrass gigging. kids. <laughs> yeah. So um, in the summers, we'd go to. It wasn't anything like extensive. Maybe we'd do mm-hmm. a few festivals a year. Um, every now and then, we'd get like a weekend where we'd fly somewhere and do a festival, and that was always really exciting. Um, but yeah, I remember it kind of like got to be more and more. And then as I was um, older, towards the end of high school, I started playing solo shows as well. And I would just play at like local coffee shops and stuff. And I started writing songs. But yeah, most of our shows were in California. We didn't do too many like actual tours, but we'd do more like one-off. Weekend stints and stuff, right. Mm -hmm. So do you remember a time when you were in that age between say nine and 12 when you could play to a certain extent, but Mm -hmm. maybe weren't taking it super seriously do you remember a time when you started to realize like hey this is something that I really want to pursue and like really taking it seriously or was it just like some kids play soccer a lot and you play guitar a lot um yeah I don't know it's hard to tell it's hard to remember exactly what I was thinking I remember when I was like 13 I was like okay I'm gonna practice two hours a day and that was like a really big goal for me so I did that that's kind of like my first memory of me being really serious about it. Yeah. Um, and I, would, I remember doing that too. I remember yeah. <laughs> like around that age just being like, ah, I'm going to yeah. do this. <laughs> I know. something kind of similar to totally. that. Totally. Yeah. yeah. So oh, that's, that's my cool. first memory of being like, I'm going to take this seriously. And then when I was maybe 15 and 16, that's when I 
I was like thinking about college and mm -hmm. what I wanted to do after high school. And um, so that's when I started to make decisions based on like, I want to be a musician. I want to check out these colleges. I want to like take these classes. So tell me about at, at that stage when you're kind of developing your guitar style and there's a lot of facets to actually, let me just jump over. Um, I'm not familiar with your experience with the banjo. Like obviously you must mm -hmm. play banjo, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I've never seen you do it or really hurt. I, I, I guess on some of your records, do you play banjo or do you have a banjo player um, coming on in? On my older ones, I didn't play any, I haven't played banjo on any of my solo, like my solo EP or my record that came okay. out this year. Um, I played banjo on all, I was playing all the banjo on my family band records. And then I Just played, overdubbing, overdubbing the banjo on top of or playing sometimes yeah you, it was always overdubbing we just had okay. like a tiny studio so everyone just went in and did their part one by one um okay so tell so so <laughs> i didn't realize you guys actually made records then. yeah we made a couple records yeah. um and it was like very like it was low-key like we just had a few microphones so every, yeah. we would just like make a rhythm track and then everyone would go in and play to it it wasn't like a and just kind of it took a long time usually because we just kind of do it right. when we the time too. So what would you start with? Like who would do it first? Um, I can't remember <laughs> that well. You Usually like a someone would do rhythm guitar or bass. My dad might play bass and then yeah. we put guitar in and then like... And were you recording it to computers or to like a eight track or what did you have? Um, to computers. Yeah. 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 We used this... I can't remember the program we were using. Um, sonar. sonar. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks dad. Yeah, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but that was fun because I got to help mix sometimes too, and I felt like I was like in a way getting some producer experience because I would like yeah. figure out how to mix that's the tracks. That's how you do it. That's yeah. how. That's that's the only uh, way to do it. Really, yeah, I just learned about recording. Yeah, obviously it's it was different than like later when I recorded my records and we did more live stuff. But yeah, but having that knowledge, especially mm -hmm. if you're actually doing it, mm -hmm. like if you're not going into a studio and you're actually like pressing the buttons and like putting the microphones, it's a, it's like you learn more doing that than mm -hmm. you would at like four years of college, I think. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, okay, so getting back to guitar, what was what were your main flat picking influences? Like I know there's other facets to your playing, but probably mm -hmm. at that point were you kind of getting obsessive about flat picking guitar? Yeah. Um, yeah, I was really obsessed with Dave Rawlings because I was – um, I love Gillian Welch and she was like my biggest influence probably through my teenage years. I listened to her yeah. nonstop. And like, I remember just like when I would hear Dave play, it was like no one else, like his yeah. playing just really hit me in a different way than every other guitar player pretty much. And so I would like look for any recording I could find of him playing and um, just like any live recording or any like sort of random like side project they had done or played on other people's records. So his playing was really influential to me. I don't know if I sound that much like him, but I definitely like learned a lot of his solos mm -hmm. and listened to him all, all the time. Is there anything you could like demonstrate a little bit that you feel like you, <laughs> that you not necessarily like ripped off, but yeah. like that, that stuck with you about yeah, his style? Um, his style. Well, okay. So like he uses a lot of like minor, second intervals and like interesting and like yeah. a lot of nines over chords so like I remember learning his solo from Annabelle and I actually relearned this recently because I was doing an interview about all my guitar heroes but um like 
stuff like that where he's playing these interesting intervals and notes all over the hanging, chord that yeah they're all hanging other, yeah. and I really like how melodic his playing is I think I use that in my playing I'm not using as many like just playing over scales more to me I'm thinking more like creating a melody over right. the song yeah cool yeah I went to I went to Berkeley with Dave and Gillian oh that's so cool yeah so mm-hmm. I that, that and and he was actually like pretty much playing like that back oh, then. Oh, that's cool. Maybe not quite to the same confidence or extent, but he was mm-hmm. noticeably doing his thing. Yeah, that's awesome. He was the oddball. Yeah, <laughs> that's really cool. <laughs> you were just talking about guitar influences, so so Rawlings is right up there with your mm-hmm. biggest ones. Uh, who else would you say are in your top three? Um, I'd say definitely David Greer and oh, yeah. the way he like fills out melodies when he's playing, especially his solo record, I've Got the House to Myself. Um, uh-huh. He is playing fiddle tunes, but you can hear all the chord changes because he's using so much cross-picking. And is that just a solo record? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, it's just guitar, and yeah. um, he uses, like, tons of arpeggio shapes to fill out the chords around the melodies, and he, like, takes a lot of liberties with changing the melodies and even, like, reharming the chords to fiddle tunes that most bluegrass players grow up learning. So yeah. that was a really cool record for me to check out, and I think that's influenced my style a lot. I love, like, working out arrangements where I can... Um, keep like chord tones ringing over the melody. And I'd say Clarence White was definitely another mm-hmm. influence. I think a lot of that just came naturally through like um, stuff my dad was teaching me. I did listen to a bunch of his playing, but I think when I hear him now, I'm like, oh, like so much of that playing is in what I do too. Yeah, yeah. Are there things, is there something you could demonstrate about Clarence's playing? So Clarence was in the Kentucky Colonels with his brother uh, um, Roland. Roland's still actively playing around Nashville, but Clarence died a long, long time ago. Um, but uh, yeah, brilliant flat picker. Is there yeah. is there some stuff of Clarence's that you could that yeah. has stuck with you? Um, a lot of like his playing, I find is so um, like he really uses cool rhythms like syncopation mm-hmm. and anticipation, especially when he's changing chords. So like. like his rhythm like I think really yeah. oh, I really love the rhythm playing that he does obviously his lead stuff is really cool and I think so much of his playing is just like standard vocabulary right. now um, you mentioned the term cross picking and maybe you could just demonstrate to people kind mm-hmm. of what that is because that's a, a big part of what you do and and it's like a bluegrass tradition really is it's almost like a rhythmic way of of playing between the strings and maybe you could just demonstrate yeah. that just for a sec yeah, so cross picking, I'm taking three strings and going kind of making a pattern going across the strings. So I'd, if I'm doing like the top three strings, I'll do third string, second string, first string, and then start over. And you can kind of do different patterns with that and make it fit in one measure because it's a it's a pattern of three and you're usually playing in three four, sometimes three three, but um, and, it, and it comes from banjo players. Really, I guess. Yeah. Like thumb, thumb index middles. That's why it's three, right? Yeah, I think so. I don't know, like, if it was directly influenced, but it seems like to me like it was because it sounds like banjo I feel like rolls it was. to me. Yeah. So, like, the melody, if you're putting the melody on the low string. kind of creates yeah. this like hypnotic almost um, 
anticipation of the melody to like because you're right, on the right. on the offbeat. So a technique like that, like was that a self-taught thing for you, or did you have somebody like kind of open your eyes to that when um, you were learning that kind of stuff? Yeah, I think like a lot of my favorite guitar players do that. Like Dave Rawlings does it a lot. Yeah. Um, David Greer does it a lot, and yeah. my dad was also showing me different cross-picking tricks. He basically showed me how to do it, and then it seemed like all the guitar players I was gravitating towards did it a lot in their playing. Um, so, yeah, I think just a combination of those things mm-hmm. um, it became something that's that I use a lot. So you ended up going to Berkeley. Uh, was that right out of high school that you went to Berkeley? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I started at Berkeley when I was 19. Yeah, yeah. so did I. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> um and where were you at, like musically at at that point? Were you were you um, like how accomplished were you as a bluegrass player at that point? Um, I'd say I was like I think I definitely improved a lot while I was there, especially on mm-hmm. guitar. I was like before I went to Berkeley, I had I practiced guitar a lot, but I had for the last few years before I went there, I'd been more focusing on singing and okay. writing songs. Um, did you go partly for the songwriting program? I did, yeah. Okay. I didn't do any singing stuff, but I took a lot of songwriting classes. Okay. Um, but yeah, the people I met there, especially in the bluegrass program, I think they, to me, they seemed a little more advanced than I was, especially at improvising. And they had oh, all really? these okay. interesting ideas and they knew a lot about music theory and I'd never learned anything. Right. I didn't even know like what any of the notes were on the guitar. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. And so I... Um, yeah, I, they, they'll, they'll whip you into shape pretty totally. fast there. Yeah. yeah, I think I just like took in a lot of knowledge all of a sudden within the first year and that really helped my playing. Did you take to that kind of stuff? Because not everyone's can retain that kind of knowledge. Like, yeah, I think Obviously I, you did, but what did you find it interesting and like it helped your musical development? Yeah, I loved it. After the first year, I really loved it. The first mm. year I was there, I like had no idea what was going on and yeah. I just felt like everything I was doing... Had you ever sight read before? Because that's part of it no, too. Is like you have to I, read, right? Yeah, and that was kind of where I drew the line. I kind of <laughs> avoided sight reading at all costs while I was there. Yeah, But I did, I was taking in so much other theory. To me, that just felt like it was like, oh, I know I'm not going to retain this even if I work really hard at it because yeah. I'm probably not going to be doing it after exactly. I get out of school very much. Um, but all the like the harmony and the ear training that really stuck with me and it really mm-hmm. translated into my playing. At first I was, I just had so many mental blocks where I would like every class I felt like was just so hard to understand what was right. going on. But um, after about a year I saw it like translating into my playing and then I got yeah. really interested and I really loved learning about it. I think a lot of things have changed there. I think it's really become like when I was there, there was no bluegrass program or string band or anything like that, but there mm-hmm. was people starting to be interested in that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, and there, but there was a songwriting thing, but, I, but probably the fundamentals of how they teach there hasn't changed much, which is like heavily, uh, like even if you're playing bluegrass, it's like there's, there is a jazz element of the way they teach there with mm-hmm. the harmony and the theory and, and the ear training. Yeah. It was really and interesting. Pretty good stuff to learn. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> I like, I like, so you liked it. You, you had a good experience there. I did. At first I didn't like all that stuff cause I wasn't like I felt like it was pointless because I wasn't like actually playing it on the instrument. They'd give you like written homework or you'd be practicing with ear training books, but you wouldn't be playing it on your instrument. But then I realized that it was all like helping my playing and I wasn't even like practicing it on my guitar. It would just all of a sudden I understood everything. And I think that was like a combination of learning that stuff and at the same time having like amazing private guitar teachers at the school who are showing me how it like all applied. Who who were some of the teachers that you really learned the most from there? 
Um, definitely this guy Dave Tronzo and Tronzo. He, yeah, I, I know, I know him. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. Did you ever take? Or was no, he, he wasn't there. there? there? Nice. Yeah. yeah, he's amazing, and he yeah. like. I remember like my first lesson. He was like, "We're just gonna learn like general music concepts, like this." stuff we're going to learn can apply to like any genre. And that, that yeah. was really cool. Right. Um, and we mostly worked on kind of improvising stuff and he never tried to like influence my style, but he'd be like, here's a, this chord progression and I want you yeah. to like understand how to improvise oh, over cool. this. Um, That's awesome that you learned from Tronzo. Yeah. He's like a super far out, like avant-garde New York slide guitar freak. I love that guy. Yeah. He was the <laughs> best. He was such like a, I don't know. He was just so deep. I felt like he was always... Um, teaching me like life advice to yeah, right. every lesson he'd be like uh, like I remember one lesson he was my assignment for the week was to like use a flat nine note over a chord yeah. over just like a major triad chord when I improvised and I didn't like that so if you're playing a flat nine it's like that note yeah. And I coming especially from bluegrass, I was just like, no, that doesn't <laughs> sound right to me. And he was like, why doesn't that sound right? And I was like, because it's it just sounds weird. And he was like, why does it sound weird? And I was like, because yeah. I'm not used to it. And he was like, why do you think something that you're not used to is weird? And then he really broke it down and was like, this applies to like everything in life, like racism, sexism, mm -hmm. like any sort of issue that people have with each other a lot of it is caused by that feeling you're feeling towards the note so yeah, yeah. that was really interesting right on yeah and did he hip you to some other kinds of music too like i know i mean he's coming from like ornette coleman kind of mm -hmm. style stuff almost although he played with john hyatt too like he's definitely in the roots world but yeah but he uh i mean he was more of an avant-garde improviser was he opening your ears to some of that stuff or did you not really go down not that really he didn't yeah. like tell me that many things to listen to i think that okay. would have actually been cool like I should have a probably asked him more what his influences were but he did give me some of his own recordings that he'd been on with his band and I thought that was really cool like I did love you ever playing. hear that Spanish fly record no oh my god <laughs> that's one of my favorites uh <laughs> I'll have to check it out yeah yeah do that um were there any other teachers there that were really influential or was he um, kind of the the main one yeah uh, Abby Zocher she was one of my guitar teachers for mm -hmm one or two semesters and then I was in her Joni Mitchell class she taught this um Joni Mitchell class yeah she Love did it. this Joni Mitchell ensemble and she like had every Joni guitar part like tabbed out really? and like every tuning that she ever used in this giant book oh my god and that was super fun like I hadn't I liked Joni Mitchell before that but I hadn't yeah. like listened to her other music past like the album Blue right um and I'd never like really listened that closely to her guitar parts so that was really cool and um, so was that your first uh, foray into open tuning? Yeah. Or mm -hmm. no, I had done some open tuning with when I play claw hammer guitar. Yeah. Um, but that that's like an open G tuning. And okay. so this really, I had never played in like dad gad um, yeah. or like open D tunings. And she, she uses some pretty far out tunings. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it was really fun. Neat. It was cool. So yeah, Joni Mitchell. Were you getting into finger style at all aside from the claw hammer bit. stuff? Yeah, a little bit. And okay. Abby is a finger style player. So she... I learned some like Joni fingerstyle parts and yeah. then um, she taught me like one Bach thing that I never got the hang of and was yeah, trying yeah. to get me to do fingerstyle. I was like, no, that's not, <laughs> that's not happening. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I did. A, I also took um, some like a little bit of like blues, a few like blues labs where we did fingerstyle. I took like one fingerstyle blues lab. So that was, was fun. Was there a guy named Bob Stanton there? 
I never ran into him. Okay. He was, he was my teacher that I oh, cool. that I learned a lot of fingerstyle nice. stuff from. Yeah, yeah, that was fun to do a bit more of that there. Um, and so did you go into Berkeley with no intention of getting a degree there? Or were you originally thinking, oh, I'll get a music degree? Um, I was kind of undecided when I went. I was just like, I'm going to see how this goes. And then I ended up getting an artist diploma after like two and a half years. So I didn't do a full four-year yeah. degree program. but That's what um, I did too, two years. Nice. Yep. Oh, exactly yeah, we have so many similarities. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that was, it felt like the right call. It was hard to leave Berkeley because I loved it so much. But oh, yeah. at the same time, I was like, I need to be out there like touring and getting this road yeah, experience. I'm, I'm, and a music degree doesn't exactly uh, get you much unless you're going to teach at college. Right. And that was one thing I thought about too. And I was like, no, yeah. I want to be perf- out there performing. Yeah, right. Yeah. Were you starting to play around Boston? So tell me about the groups. Um, we were talking backstage about Alison DeGroote. So tell me mm-hmm. what, what the group was that you had going there. Um, yeah. I don't know if that was the whole time you were there or not, or just near the end. Yeah, that was towards the end. Um, me and Allison and Leanne Janssen and Brittany Carlson, we all got, to, got together and formed this band, The Goodbye Girls. And we formed it because Liana, the fiddle player in the band, this Swedish booking agent approached her and was like, hey, I want to be involved with Berkeley somehow. Maybe you could put a band together of students while you're there. She's from Sweden and she had gone over for like a couple semesters. Um, he was like, maybe you could put this band together and we'll book you this whole like two week tour in Sweden. And um, so they asked me to be part of that. And then we liked playing together so much that we've done a bunch of tours since then. But that was really fun. And then I was doing my own band as well with other Berkeley students um, in my band and doing some gigs that like Berkeley would put together a bluegrass band. And I was usually in one of the bluegrass bands they'd put together. But that was when I started like putting my own bands together a bit more too. Okay. And so. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. So at that point, you were doing mo- you were mostly playing guitar and mostly flat picking? Mm-hmm. Um, so tell me about the claw hammer thing. Like, obviously that comes from your playing banjo, but mm-hmm. um, it can't directly jump from banjo to guitar. There's more strings on a guitar. Uh, the banjo has a drone string, of course, that mm-hmm. it, you incorporate. So can you tell me about how you first even started messing around with it and maybe some of the hurdles that you technically had to overcome to be able to translate that style to the guitar? Yeah. Um, yeah, it was like, it wasn't too difficult to translate it over. The first thing is just like tuning the guitar to an open tuning so that instead of like the high drone on the banjo, you then have a low drone on one of the guitar strings. Um, I usually use like an open G tuning and tune the A string down to a G. So that's the string that's usually the drone. Like two Gs in a row? Um, so it would be like the E string goes down to D and then G and then... D, G. So it's mostly like Ds and Gs. And then I tune the B string up to a C. So it's like a kind of modal tuning. And can you give us a little taste of of your claw hammer? Sure. Is it cool if I tune? It's cool, yeah. Okay. (laughs) We'd prefer it actually. Okay, great. (laughs) (laughs) So you never do, you never, obviously, you never do it in standard tuning. I don't. I've like tried it before and it just doesn't sound right with all the the notes ringing. Yeah. Notes not ringing. 
So who taught you about this tuning or was this something you kind of um, just picked up on? This guy, Michael Stadler, showed me this and he's out in the Bay Area. And I learned this from him when I was like 15 or 16. And I just started Clawhammer banjo and I was getting more into old time music. Um, yeah. And he, I was teaching at a camp called the California Coast Music Camp. And he was a teacher there, and um, I, I had, like, an off period, and he was teaching a class on claw hammer guitar, and I'd never heard of that, but it sounded cool, so I went and checked it out, and he showed us all this tuning, and we learned the song Little Sadie that's kind of uses, like, a basic claw hammer pattern um, that I already knew on banjo, and so then after that, I took it home and tried to fit it into other songs that I did and um, kind of worked up different rhythms with it. Does anyone else do it? He does it, and I've heard that I recently someone told me that um, this guy Jody Stecker, like yeah. out in the Bay Area as well, started doing it first. Um, okay. Yeah. So there's like a few guys in the Bay Area that I know of who do it, but um, I don't really know that many people yeah, outside of I'd, that. I've never who heard do this anyone style. do it before. You. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so maybe maybe can you give us like a, a taste of something super simple just to give everyone a bit of a feel for the style and how it works, and then maybe something that you wrote or something that's a bit more sure um, characteristic of what you do with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this is like a basic pattern. Um, when I'm when I've like taught claw hammer guitar or banjo, I usually start with this pattern called the bum ditty and it's just Ah uh, the old bum ditty. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. And then how do you incorporate melody into that? Um, so you can incorporate, usually the melody is with your index finger. But then if you want to play um, more melody notes, you can drop your thumb down to one of the higher strings. So then you have twice so as many. So can you play like a <laughs> simple tune? In, yeah. Yeah. So I'll play, um, this is the first tune I learned on claw hammer guitar, Little Sadie. using yeah. a lot of hammer-ons and pull-offs to um, accentuate the melody. Yeah. Um, and then can you give us a, uh, a taste of maybe something that you wrote that's a little more advanced than that? like some, Sure. Uh, just to show kind of where you've taken it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is a tune off my new record called Take the Journey, and I wrote this um, one with my friend Sarah Siskin, and it just seemed, we wrote the melody and the words and stuff, and then um, it just had the vibe that I thought could fit with the claw hammer guitar yeah. really well. Huh? <laughs> yeah. Love that tune. <laughs> Thanks. That's great. What's your thumb uh, doing there exactly? Is it like... <laughs> um, so my index finger... Is it doing something regular? Kind of. Or is it of. random? It's, oh, it's regular-ish, um, it okay. but you can like 
sometimes you don't use the thumb rhythm. I don't know. It's kind of like it's at the same. It's doing the same rhythm, but I don't. It? Can always... you slow that down or no? Yeah, sure. You can? Um, so what I'm doing is like hitting the strings down with my index yeah. and middle finger, and then the thumb catches on the low strings, and I'll pluck with my thumbs. But sometimes, or with my thumb, I don't have multiple thumbs. Um, <laughs> if only. <laughs> so take the journey, slow down would be. <laughs> So the rhythm of my hand is staying the same, but I'm not always plucking the strings right. with my thumb. Or sometimes I'm dropping it to the one of the higher strings. Like, that's a thumb note. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it kind of creates this not not really steady rhythm. With yeah, it's sort of implied. It comes in every now and then. It's yeah. kind of like an implied rhythm, really, when you think about it. Like, it's it's not at all driving the ship. Like, when I play fingerstyle, my thumb is totally driving the ship. But when mm -hmm. you're doing that, uh, the thumb is almost just like a... It's just sort of falling into place behind the what the fingers are doing. That's really mm -hmm. interesting. Yeah. Wow, neat. <laughs> um, okay, so that kind of brings us to like some of your more contemporary stuff. Um, did you go straight from Berkeley right to Nashville? Like, how how did that transition happen? Yeah, pretty much. I stayed at, in Boston for like six months after I graduated in May. Yeah. And then I stayed until February, and that's when I moved to Nashville. Okay. And what was the reason for the move, aside from Nashville being awesome? <laughs> um, I just felt like, I, I don't know, a lot of my friends were leaving after school, and yeah. I thought I could really, like, start my career in Nashville. Like, there's there was more, like, music industry and so many, like, records that I love yeah. being made there, and so many artists that I wanted to collaborate with mm -hmm. are there. Um, so it just, it seemed like an exciting place to be um, yeah. for the next step, and... Um, also like Boston was so cold in the winters. I was like ready to, <laughs> I'm yeah. from California. So I'm like, Hey, I'm from Canada. I, yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> when you got to Nashville, like, like, was there already a community there of people that you knew from Berkeley that had moved there? Like, I feel like there's so many Berkeleyites mm -hmm. that, that moved to Nashville after it must've been kind of like a reunion. Yeah. There <laughs> were some, actually like a lot of my closer friends, at Berkeley didn't move to Nashville right away and now some of them have but yeah. um I think there were a lot of people in Boston that I knew who had moved to Nashville um and a lot of them became like closer friends after I moved but right when I got there I think in my mind I was like this is gonna be so easy like I know all these people but I didn't realize that so many of my close friends were in Boston um, and so when I got to town, it was like, wait, what do I do? Like <laughs> kind of lonesome <laughs> a little bit at first. Yeah. yeah. yeah sure. And it, when I was touring so much, so it was hard to like, just, it was hard to like build those relationships because yeah. I was gone so much and then I'd be back for a week and, um, try to like, what was your meet up touring situation at that point? It was, did you have the, was there a Molly Tuttle band yet or no? Yeah. Oh, I was, was. Okay. just starting to, okay. I just like had started doing a four piece band and I'd had different iterations of my band, um, at yeah. Berkeley. I was playing with like a trio for a while. Um, but when I moved to Nashville, that's when I was really starting to pick up with my band. Um, so it was like a bluegrass, like four piece band with banjo and fiddle and bass. And then I played guitar obviously. And then, yeah. um, yeah, we were, we weren't like touring nonstop, but it, it was getting pretty busy. Yeah. Yeah. 
Okay. Um, and can you tell me a little bit about your songwriting process? Like at, at that point, like had you mm-hmm. been doing that a lot at that point? Like when you were at Berkeley, were you writing songs? And when you first moved to Nashville, how prolific of a writer were you? Um, yeah, I was writing songs. It's always been a little bit on and off for me. Like I yeah. might have a phase where I don't write as much. Um, then I get back into it. But at Berkeley, I was writing a lot of songs and I was in classes where you had to write songs right. continuously and that's good um, a good practice to get into. yeah that was yeah. really good for me while I was there and and then after Berkeley I was still writing a lot and I knew I wanted to make a record when I got to Nashville so I was writing a bunch for that and okay um, when I got to Nashville that's when I started trying more co-writing which is which was pretty fun um, yeah. it was definitely really new for me um, but yeah I was doing a lot of writing and then that's a big thing in, in, in Nashville is the the co-write mm-hmm. situation. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's cool. And it's yeah, it's not for everybody. Yeah, I was still like trying to figure out if it's if something it's I or like <laughs> or something that terrifies me. It can be a little uncomfortable sometimes, <laughs> yeah. but when it's good, it's good, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. with the right people I love it. And yeah. then sometimes I just don't like drive with the person musically or it's just yeah. I'm just feeling like intimidated sometimes right. and it's hard to like really let the ideas flow, but yeah. overall I like it. So the music from Rise, mm-hmm. um, that was your EP that came yeah. out in 2017 or 16 um, or something? Yeah, 2017, I think. Okay. What I'm really intrigued by is is that you're um, such a good traditional player and you're so rooted in bluegrass and, and all that, but it seems like when you make your own records, mm-hmm. um, and even more so with the latest one, but with Rise, mm-hmm. you can already hear that you're interested in, in a lot more... Um, elements than just traditional music. Um, so can you maybe just in the context of Rise, which was just an EP, um, mm-hmm. can you tell me about the songs you were writing and also how you wanted to approach sonically making a record at that point? Because it's, yeah, there's all kinds of instruments that that are not from the bluegrass realm in there and production values and stuff like that too. Yeah, um, yeah, for that record, I... Um found Kai Welch who produced it and yeah, I know Kai. Yeah. yeah. And so he kind of like he's played with bluegrass players and um Abigail Washburn who plays Clawhammer banjo. So I knew he like knew a lot about the acoustic world yeah. and I'd ran into him at fiddle camps and bluegrass festivals. So um I liked that he had an understanding of that world but does, also Does he play what what does he like I just know him as a keyboard player. What yeah, a, he plays he? keys, he plays like electric guitar, accordion, he plays so many different instruments and he played a lot of instruments on the on the Rise EP. Okay. Um yeah. and so he yeah, he did a really good job of I had my core band and we like we'd who, been playing Who the was songs. in your core band at that point? Um that was Wes Corbett who I played with him for years like Every time I've done like a more bluegrassy band, he's been in it. He plays banjo. Um, and then John Mylander played fiddle and octave mandolin. And um, Todd Phillips played upright bass. So oh, that was cool. the core. And yeah. that band was on almost every... The members of that band were like on pretty much everything. Or at least some of them were on everything. So did you and, did you and Kai sit down and like come up with a concept for the record of like, you know, how, how can we incorporate the traditional elements with more contemporary stuff? Um, we did a little bit. I kind of said, like, I want to just experiment with mm-hmm. stuff. So we kind of left it till we got into the studio and we're like, okay, let's see what works on on these songs. Um, but yeah, I definitely, I wanted to have my band on it and I knew that was one thing that was important to me. Mm-hmm. Um, 
there's a song on there, Save This, is it Save This Heart? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, the, like something like that, I think is a really good example of something where it's a mix of, like it's got all the, all the elements of a traditional tune. And if you took mm-hmm. it out of context and just put a bluegrass band behind it, it would be mm-hmm. a full on yeah. <laughs> traditional kind of song. But the way that you approach it on the record, there's drums and more mm-hmm. sonic layers and stuff like that. So how did you go about actually recording those songs? Um, we recorded that one with, I think we recorded that for starters, just with bass and fiddle and Daryl Scott came in and played on that. Awesome. I think he came in after though and like overdubbed onto that one just because of scheduling. Yeah. And then also because of scheduling stuff, um, Jono Ricks, who played percussion and drums on that one, came in after as well, which was really interesting. Oh, wow. It was like... That's that's hard. Yeah. It was a testament to ha- like how amazing he is because he... He played drums after the fact and we hadn't tracked to a click track or anything. So right. it was like really just like, yeah, it wasn't like uniform rhythm. And he came in and he actually like made the track all sound more in time. Somehow right. he like yeah. listened so closely. He's so amazing, that was that cool. Guy. Yeah. Yeah, he is. With the new record, um, I think just because that was such a familiar band for me that the rhythm, all the rhythm stuff clicked really well. Um, how, how long did you spend record, on, it was on the... Harder. On the EP, like, was it a, did you just go in and spend like a few days on it or was it like a process of going in and working and then overdubbing and did like, did Um, you spend a longer period of time on it? Yeah, I think we had like six or seven recording days with the band and then we like had people come and do overdubs during those days when they could. And then for a few months after that, Kai was adding stuff on his own or bringing people in to sing harmonies. And yeah, um, yeah, so the majority of it was just like within six days recorded and um, my friend Eric just go yaks garage. <laughs> we just did it there oh, yeah. like outside Nashville. And, um, yeah, so we had a week recording there and then just kind of like the rest kind of trickled in as Kai would put stuff on. And were you involved in the process the whole way through or did you just sort of leave it in Kai's hands at some point or how did that work? Um, I was pretty involved. There were times when I was out of town and he'd be like, Hey, can I like put some stuff on this track? And I'd be like, yeah, just send it to me. Yeah. Um, but I was there for all the mixing after that and, yeah, I felt pretty involved in the whole process. Yeah. Do you enjoy that the mixing process or is that um, tedious? I don't know if I enjoy it, but <laughs> like I'm really, I get kind of OCD about it yeah. and like I can't not be really involved in it because I always like have ideas about how I want it to be. Right. Um, but yeah, it makes, it gets me in a weird headspace for sure. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. when I'm listening that closely, then I go and listen to other music and I'm like listening equally closely. If you've never mixed an album before, it basically means you're sitting there like listening to one element of a song for maybe three or four hours. And maybe it's the snare drum and it's really boring sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I do it all the time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, why an EP at that point? Like was that just, that's all you guys felt like recording um, or was that all you had or was that always the original intention? We actually recorded a full album. So there were like tr- three tracks that we didn't put on the EP and... I think it was, in the end, I felt like it was more cohesive, stripped down to, like, the songs that we ended up putting on it. Um, there were some, those were most of the ones that had the full band on it, and I just felt like it was hard to figure out the flow. Right. Um, even, like, tempo-wise, it was hard to figure out how everything fit together yeah. with all the songs added in. Um, and I thought, like, one of them, Sit Back and Watch It Roll, I ended up recording on my latest album. So I just felt like it was... I wanted to save a few of the songs yeah, and yeah. start with an EP and then use that to build up to my full length album. There's an instrumental on there, uh, Supermoon, on the on the EP. 
that I think is really interesting too, because it's like, I struggle with this sometimes in the studio. It, it um, when you've got acoustic instruments and then kind of like, I wouldn't say like really aggressive drumming, but like definitely present and mm-hmm. on the busier side of drumming. How mm-hmm. did you, how did you record a song like that where there's all those elements going on? Mm-hmm. Like the, cause the drums don't trample all over the guitar and that's actually really hard to do. <laughs> yeah. I think you did it really well on that. <laughs> yeah. So what was the, was... like, did you have to arrange that or was it just like, no. did it just happen? It just kind of happened. That was Jono. Like, I That's had my Jono. part kind of thought out and then I did some improvising on it, but it was really just us playing it at the same time. We did that one live and yeah. just started with just drums and guitar. I thought that could be kind of cool. Yeah. Um, instead of like, we tried playing it with the other acoustic instruments and it was just like the groove of the tune was so different from what we usually did. It wasn't really clicking. And then um, just playing it with Jono was really fun. We like kind of fed off of each other and yeah. then we added um, cello and flute later on oh, cool. <laughs> to the track. But yeah, we recorded that one just pretty live and it was pretty loose and just kind of okay. like going with the flow. Oh, it's all, yeah, it sounds it sounds meticulously worked out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would say that's, again, Jono is just a very good listener. He's the drummer in the Wood Brothers, if anyone knows that guy. He's awesome. Um, is that is that a tune you can play on your own? Um, yeah, I can. I haven't played it in a long time, but I can at least play like the melody of it. Okay, so here's Superman. Is that standard tuning? No, I'm in drop D. Drop D. Okay. Mm-hmm. The high E is just regular though? That's regular. Okay. Yeah. So can you tell me a little bit about how your approach changed for the new record? Um, because it seems to have even gone a little further in that direction. Like it's more mm-hmm. of a band thing. There's a bit more sonic experimentation going on, I would say. Mm-hmm. And um, I know that you hooked up with Ryan Hewitt to yeah. produce it, which is really interesting. Ryan Hewitt's a great um, producer and engineer. Does he live in Nashville now? Mm-hmm. Okay. He's an LA guy that uh, he produced, or he worked on like Red Hot Chili Peppers record and um, Brian Wilson records and a lot of like really intricate, cool pop stuff. Um, mm-hmm. Tell me how you met him and what you're, what you're um, going into that session, what you were thinking. Yeah, I met him at one of my shows in Nashville. It was like a little showcase that my label put on and kind of invited some people in the industry to come to. Um, There were a few different like producers and engineers and other musicians and stuff. It was kind of just a small thing I did. And he was there and I met him and um, I just remember we like instantly connected and he told me all about working with like Rick Rubin, Blink-182, Red Hot Chili Peppers. All the bands that you loved, right? Yeah, all the bands that I loved as like a 13 year old. So I was like, whoa, (laughs) I started just like, I got so excited and um yeah he like knew all this like punk rock stuff that I liked when I was younger and he'd worked with the Avett brothers who I also listened to a lot growing up and so I talked to him more and we just seemed to like connect on all these different musical things like we liked so many of the same bands and um had a lot of the same ideas so I instantly after just talking to him for 
like five minutes at that party, I was like, whoa, that guy seems really cool and I want to talk to him more. And I was thinking of producers, but nothing had really materialized yet for the record. Yeah. Um, so we got coffee maybe like one or two months after that and talked about it and it just really clicked and like flowed really naturally. Our schedules like perfectly lined up and it yeah. all just seemed to work out really well. So going into it, how much of a of a time frame were you looking at? Did you anticipate spending on the record? And did you end up spending more time than that or was it pretty much what you thought it would be going in? Um, it was, I feel like every time I've done something like that, it's always more time. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. I think we both got a lot more invested and put a lot more energy right. and time into it than we thought we would. Um, we did like a week of pre-production and worked a lot on the songs, getting them, getting all the lyrics right. And Ryan would listen to a song and be like, hey, you should rewrite this first. And I'd go back home and write it and come back in. Um, were, you, were you co-writing some of the material or was it all your stuff? Uh, we co-write, co-wrote one of the songs, Light Came In, Power Went Out. Um, I started writing that with my friend Maya and we only got the chorus and then... Maya Davitri? Yeah, Maya oh, Davitri. Cool. And then like a year later, Ryan and this woman, Stephanie Smith and I finished the song. But the rest of it was just him being like, this is the part that's not connecting with me. I think you need to like oh. work on this part a little more. So I'd go home and rewrite it. So I did a lot of editing um, in the writing part before and then... We went into the studio and spent like a little over a week, maybe like yeah. eight or nine days in the studio with the full band, yeah. um, tracking things all together. And then we had a few like overdub days and then I actually ended up overdubbing a lot of my parts after we, like I got it all done, but then we'd be like, oh, this part could be a little better. Or we yeah, wanna, yeah. We'd like experiment a lot with the guitar parts I was playing and I'd... So you were isolated enough in the, in the initial mm -hmm. recording process where you could go over your file, mm -hmm. your, your, your parts and, and get yeah. them to the point where you wanted them. Did you record your guitar and your vocals separately? Um, we did something different for like every track. Like there right. were a few where I did it at the same time. And on my EP, I did everything at the same time. And like, yeah. I thought that's what I was most comfortable with. But sure. for this record, I hadn't been playing the songs for as long. And I wasn't, okay. I still like was kind of trying to figure out how I wanted to sing them and how I wanted to play them. So yeah. um, there were a couple tracks where I did it at the same time and I did it right there in the studio and we kept that. But for a lot of them, I went and redid my guitar part and then redid yeah. my vocal later. In retrospect, like how do you like that process of like just doing your vocal track on top of music that's already pre-recorded? Um, I ended up liking it a lot. Um, I hadn't really enjoyed doing that before. I always thought mm -hmm. like I sang more naturally when I was playing guitar and... Yeah. That's definitely true for some of the songs. That was definitely true. Um, there were like certain songs where I just kind of locked in with the band more when I was singing it with my guitar. Um, but I liked being able to experiment and like try out singing things in different ways and seeing what worked, mm -hmm. especially it was all like new material. So yeah, I liked, I liked that. Was there a, is there a song on the new record that you feel like really um, changed as the process went along? Yeah, I think the song Sleepwalking on the new record, yeah. like the way I sang that and... Everything about that song changed a lot, especially my guitar part. I was starting out playing it like this chugging rhythm, like, and I ended up doing like a really soft, like, cross, or not cross picking, but kind of arpeggiated thing, like, in instead. Yeah, instead. Right. So we worked on that one a lot, and I like would go in and try something else and be like, oh, that doesn't work. And then finally we had this breakthrough where I played the more arpeggiated part, and that seemed uh -huh. to work. Did you find that frustrating? It was a little frustrating, but then it's like, it always is so nice when you find the thing that works. Yeah. Can you play that song? Sure.
I drove into the sea Float away with the fear killer uh so the new album is called when you're ready um and that's uh sleepwalking that's that, i love the the way that the rhythm guitar is complex and simple at the same time <laughs> like not really simple at all but just like <laughs> 
fully works so well with the way that you perform that. That's so cool. Thanks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so these days you're you're out touring for the record. You're doing some solo stuff, a lot of band stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, who's in your band these days? Aside um, from our friend Sam. Well, yeah, Sam. Yeah, Sam Howard um, is playing bass with me. Nicholas Falk plays drums with me. Um, Anthony DaCosta has been playing guitar and keys. And Christian Sandelmeyer plays violin. I'm just curious, like, does it ever materialize that the, that your fans that, you know, are used to you being in the bluegrass world, do they get, ever get frustrated with non-bluegrass stuff? Like, to um, me, it just seems like it's music and it shouldn't be like that, but it seems like maybe, um, you know, y- your your records are veering off into some really interesting territory that's just not that anymore. Yeah. Do you see yourself <laughs> veering more into that? side of things or like where do you see your your recording output going after this yeah I think it's probably gonna I'm probably not gonna like go back in the direction of like bluegrass and kind of stuff that I grew up playing um I could see it I think it's kind of go gonna go a little farther out probably in the next few (laughs) records um cool maybe more in like indie song I don't know how to describe it but Uh um yeah I always I think I will make a fully bluegrass record at some point again yeah. but yeah um yeah because i still love playing that and i still play when i'm home i go to bluegrass jams and it's not uh-huh. like i'm never playing it anymore but yeah i think i think i just want to keep um keep just following the songs that i'm writing and yeah. seeing what they're asking for and yeah. yeah that's cool um and are you touring all over the world these days or what's your general thing that you guys are doing yeah i'm touring all over um i'm going to europe in October, I'm gonna be in um, October and early November. Gonna be in the UK, which I've been there a few times now, and the Netherlands. I've never played my own stuff in the Netherlands. That'll be fun. And yeah, I'm going yeah. to Australia for the very first They'll time. They love you in the Netherlands. Oh yeah, uh, I'm yeah. excited. Well, I, th- I think we have to wrap it up. Um, thank you so much, everybody, for listening. And yeah, if you want to hear more Molly Tuttle, uh, we're doing a show l- later, and she'll do a bunch of other stuff. So thank you so much <laughs> for listening and hanging out. Yeah, thank uh, you. This is Molly Tuttle again. <laughs> and uh, yeah, thank you. It's been, it's been great doing this. And uh, if you want to check out the podcast, it's Music Makers and Soul Shakers. This episode will hopefully come out in about two or three months or something like that. And uh, you can subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever. And uh, thank you. Yeah, thanks, Thanks, Steve. Thanks for having me. All right. That was my conversation with Molly Tuttle, my first ever live podcast coming to you from the Cranert Center in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois, at the University of Illinois. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening, everybody. The Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast was recorded in Nashville, Tennessee at the Hen House Studio. You can visit us online at www.stevedawson.ca. As always, I would like to thank Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver, BC for his help with research, and we'll see you next month for another gripping episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers.
Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.